Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. It is Legends Tuesday today because we have a legend sitting here. Actual legend. I, I have rarely uh, stalked a guest to come on the show, but I did stalk the great Jeff Garland. I had, I put out the clarion call and you said you got a bunch of letters. Yeah, a bunch of letters from people saying that you're a great dude and that uh, your show is great. Well, thanks for being here, man. Yeah, I'm, I, I'll tell you, I've, I, I've long wanted to talk to you and watching the new special. I heard you on my buddy Elvis Mitchell's show. Yeah. And you started talking about so much stuff that I'm fascinated by, particularly your approach to getting on stage. And, and, and you talked about it on Rogan before, but the way you talked with Elvis about the influence jazz had on you. Oh, very much so. Yes. And I'm a guy who's listened to a lot I'm of... I'm more influenced by Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane than most comedians. They, they have... In my big, comedy. In your comedy. Can you go further on that? Well, the, early on, the way I approached it was the way Charlie Parker would do April in Paris, and he would go off. The song was written, but he'd go off. And so that's how I... When I wrote material every night, I did it differently. I just... However, I just I approached it fresh. You would understand the theme, the main theme that you yeah. come back to. And then I m moved from that into literally only having an outline and approaching it like jazz. Not, and now I'm at a point where I don't even have an outline. I just go up and start playing. You just blow. That's it. Yep. And by the way, I hope it's sweet sounding, and I hope I want the audience to dig it. And it becomes intertwined with how they react towards me. So it is not because I imagine somebody who just goes up and blows a horn might be kind of arrogant. You know what I mean? But my job is to communicate thoughts, feelings, and be present with the audience. But yeah, I have nothing prepared. Ironically, what I use to come up on stage is actually music. So I, when people come to see me, I don't have someone saying, you came to see him or any, any intro. I get no intro. I have an opening act who gets introed, and then they come off stage, and there's a bit of a delay, slight delay, and then a song starts playing. The song is something that I was listening to that afternoon, where I went, oh, I'm going to walk up to this. You just decide that day. That day, or... Quite often, the drive to the gig, I think of the song. And the song makes me think of something. I talk about the song, the origin of the song, anything about the song. And that'll lead me to uh, 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 thinking of other things. And then before you know it, I say goodnight and I've done an hour. And it, when so much of doing stand-up is about being comfortable in your own skin. Very much. Huge. And part of that is basically in the way jazz musicians only cared about what they and their band really thought. Right. So how do you... When on the I was other a hand, young, you, when you I was a young comedian, Yeah, but when I was a young comedian, I only gave a shit that my peers respected me. That was like a big deal to me. Then I stopped thinking about it. Stopped thinking about the audience. Stopped thinking about my peers. I don't think about anything. I'm literally empty in terms of my goal. My goal is to be funny, thoughtful, and communicate some feeling to an audience. That's fascinating because it's a very zen koan. It's a very zen idea, right? Very much so. And You have to trust but the universe. You have to trust the universe, and, and, and you have to trust 
that it's going to be there when you reach for it. Right. Well, by the way, there are times where I sit in the green room before I go out and know I don't have it. What's and, that? What do you do? Well, what I need to do and what I'm going to do is I re- what I, at that point I rely on craft. And I can craft an hour of things I've talked about before, what might be going on. I cr- it becomes about the craft. There's no art. It's 100% craft when I don't have it. And having, having done it now, excuse me, for 37 years, um, I have the craft down too. I've developed a craft. You're a professional. Craft is, yes, I'm a professional. So craft is what I do when it's not there for me. When I do a corporate gig, it's about the craft. I go in, I do the gig, uh, they laugh, I get my money, I go home. I mean, there's no art to that. You know, art is when I'm, you're going to see Jeff Garland and it's just, and I'm feeling funny and boom, you'll see art. And if you're a good audience and when I say, when I say a great audience, you know, I have such respect for the audience and I, and their intelligence, but I also respect that every, it's not their fault if they're a bad audience. An audience is made up of people with different backgrounds, how they were raised, what humor, how important was humor in their household? What did they eat for lunch? What did they eat for dinner? Are they in the middle of an unrequited love? Are they happily married? Are they being uh, at work? Is work a nightmare? Like there's all these things. Did they exercise? Are they feeling energetic? There are all these things. So it's like a giant, it's it's an organism that the audience is and every night it's different and so when it's a great crowd it just it, to me it's pure luck it's alchemy it just happens it just happens on the other hand yeah. are you're looking for spots aren't you aren't you trying well to yeah 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 by the way i can I, what i hope i do is take a great crowd and raise them to an unbelievable crowd and i hope i tr- take a good crowd to a great crowd through what i'm doing but I have respect that it's not their fault if they're quiet. It's not, when I was a young comedian, I used to be so insulted. It's not their fault if they're not laughing at the nuanced thing that you're coming up Taking with. Taking yourself out of it is one of the hardest things for an artist to learn to do. To get the reward, right? There's a part of you that needs the reward of the whole thing. Well, no. See, you said a key word. You said needs. If you need the reward, you're in trouble. Good. And so what I've come to understand over the course of being a, becoming a man uh, is that it's about confidence and it's about <clears throat> humbleness, which means, I, like I said, I respect the audience. And so I'm humble in front of the audience, but I'm completely confident that they've entered a world of a pro that can do some damage, you know, but I'm not assuming that's what's going to happen. I'm hopeful. That Yeah, I'm flashing on a couple of different things, different ways that different ways that artists approach this question of what makes us feel alive when we do what we do. Right. And so for you, you're able to sort of separate, it sounds like, well, that's a money gig. Mm-hmm. And that's a gig where Jeff Garland's going to try to be Well, alive. the money gigs, I only do money gigs corporate-wise. I do not do, like a private company says they want me to come perform at their lunch yeah, cor- I, or yeah. convention or something. I'll do those. Recently, I got one for a lot of money, and they had asked somebody else first, and they told this comedian not to talk about Trump. 
And the comedian says, I'll talk about what I want to talk about. And I, and it was a ton of money. And I'm thinking, when they offered it to me, I'm like, what do you care if you talk about Trump or not? It's not your show. It's their show. And you make the money and you leave because you know a corporate gig's a sellout. No, it's from, a flat by out. By definition, sellout. it's a sellout. From by the definition, it's a sellout. So, and I don't do many of them, you know. But when I do, that's what that's about. Every other aspect of my career, film, television, my stand-up, there is no, there's no, um, there's no sellout. There's because there's sellout. very little compromise. You're there's just no, going. I'm at a point now. Yeah, I mean, the last compromise. Like my work on the Goldbergs, you could say to a degree is comedy, because that comedy is not my style of comedy. It's very broad, very accessible. And not that I don't want to be accessible, but it's accessible to people who don't love comedy. My comedy is truly designed for people who love comedy. If you're a comedy fan, like when I do the red carpet, any comedy outlet, it's going to be gold, and they're excited to see me. Everybody else, it's more about the pretty people, you know? I'm a character actor who's a comedian, and that doesn't appeal to them. But I know that. They don't appeal to me. I'm for the comedy fan. It's like there are certain music art music artists that you have to be a music fan to dig. Like Radiohead is not getting any passive listeners, you know? Um uh, jazz doesn't get a lot of well, passive. Yeah, like whereas you can listen to Giant Steps and anyone can understand why that's good. Right. But then if you want to go listen to Miles Bitches, or you can listen to Kind of Blue and it's very right. easy to understand. Right. Bitches Brew is harder to understand. Well, even though it's hard to understand, but I think even Kind of Blue, which is a, a jazz album for, I mean, it's, it's truly for, brilliant because anyone can enjoy it. It's still, you have to love music to dig kind of blue. I, I think so. And I think to, to really dig me, you have to dig comedy. Yeah, you have to show up wanting to take whatever the well, ride you, was. No, there's comedy fans. Comedy is so popular now that I find myself on stage in L.A., let's say at the comedy store, and the, the room is sold out. And I'm watching how they react to the other comedians. And then after my set, and I can come off stage knowing that I did fine, did good. But knowing ah, those that they aren't comedy fans, they're just doing the hot thing. Right, they're not your people. They're no. not your tribe. They're not your tribe. Yeah, comedy fans are my tribe. How quickly do you feel that when you walk on stage that you're with your tribe? Uh, when, it's, when it's there? It's, it becomes apparent immediately, within a minute. And does it change how the thing flows for you? Well, no, it only gets better if they're comedy fans. That's what I'm saying. It it yeah. it will sort of allow you to shift into a oh, different... Oh, most certainly. I can do some really cool stuff. But there are other nights where, you know, it's not comedy fans. And then, like I said, it goes more to the craft and more to, you know... But this speaks I'm to, I'm like, hopeful. you being very open the way a jazz musician is. Uh, you know, if someone's playing with Max Roach and suddenly Max finds an inverted rhythm... right. They're going to fly. So You've got to be present. My job as an actor, here's the way I actually approach yeah. it. Um, you know, I did a panel for Variety about uh, supporting actors, and we're all sitting there, and I'm like, all of you are going to get nominated. I'm never going to get nominated because I am a supporting actor. Every one of you is best actor who's not a lead. I'm a supporting uh, actor. My job is to make whoever I'm in a scene with look 
good, be the best that they can be. I look at them, and my job is to serve them. Hopefully, you want the other actor to feel the same way. Then it all rises, where it's only about you're the not work trying to win the, the scene. scene. No, you're never trying God, to win never, the scene. Never, never, never. The scene is never about me, even when it is about me. It's never about me. Right, and you take it feels to me like I'm also a storyteller as an actor. That's my job to tell the story. So, how do you prepare to do that, Jeff? To tell the story. What does that mean? That means to be truthful to the material. That means know my lines, know what the writer intends, know, know what the scene is about, and approach it with that sort of, I'm on the page to make this a great scene. And, and that, tell the story of the scene, which leads to the overall story of the movie or the TV show. So as a fat man, I loved... I loved the stuff in the special. So your new special, Our Man in Chicago, is just right. fantastic. Right. Uh, and I, I loved the story of your first time um, acting right. when you ate 36. Yeah, my first time in, a, in a, it was my second movie. Was my second? I think my first movie was Jacob's Ladder, of which I was completely cut out because I don't anyone remembers that movie, but I was Jacob's funny friend. There was no. No, there's not a lot of humor in the movie. And then, and then uh, Adrian Lyne, the director, would say to me, "We're filming a scene," and he would say, "All right, Jeff, just make it up, make it funny." And I'm like, "I need a scenario. I need something. I can't just walk in and be witty." Oh, he would say to me, "Be witty, be witty." That's what Adrian Lyne would say to me. That's hilarious. Yeah. That's difficult. You know, no difficult. It's impossible. Well, Riser cannot... did it in Diner. Riser did it in Diner. What do you there mean? were no part. There was no dialogue written for Paul Riser in Diner. Well, by the way, but he Paul had a Reiser scenario. Paul Riser figured it out. Okay. Well, here's what you. I'm not saying out. he's a better man than Jeff Garland. By the way, he is a fine man. I actually did mad about you last week. Here's the thing. Was he witty? They're, they're rebooting. Was it. he witty? He's always witty. Here's the thing. I was just thrown into these scenes that had no anything. He's at a diner. And to me, what was brilliant about his, his, his performance was he just took the magic of the simplicity of, are you going to finish that? Well, guess what? That's brilliant comedy. That's somebody oh, who has really great is. instincts and knows what they're doing. So it was his skill set and how funny he was that allowed him to go to the simplicity of, I guarantee that, uh, what's his name, who directed that, didn't say, be witty. <laughs> Barry Levinson. Barry Levinson said, just sit here and whenever you think of something, yeah, have like, fun. You know, He yeah. understands that better than Adrian Lyne does. Yeah. But the the, the story. Here's the thing that's underpinning the special and what I wanted to really talk to you about. When I think about your whole body of work, there's this, there's this dichotomy, man, between this, very, this person who has the capacity to be really genial and friendly and then this fucking cauldron of rage right. underneath. Right. And it seems to me that you have fenced with where to put this rage right. for your whole professional life. Right. So this is something noble I targets. You can have as much rage as you want, and it's funny the way I do rage. I know that people have been amused about it. People love watching me get angry about stuff. If I have noble targets, something that is infuriating and frustrating, and hopefully we all feel the same way, that's where rage comes in. When rage comes in in other places that are not noble, not funny. 
but how have you learned as an artist in life, right? I, I talk about a lot on this podcast and in life. So many of us use rage as the fuel to become successful. Right. We use rage as the thing that, that we burned to right. make our fucking art. Right. Then, to me, it stops being, it stopped being useful at a certain point because right. it stopped burning clean. Right. Be- because, you know, it, 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 um, it's harder to turn off right. and there are higher things to chase. So right. I wonder how you think about it now. Yes, as a professional, you were Rage wanna... was involved in my personal life, maybe as a boy. Right. But as a man, it has no place in my life. I when nothing... you define becoming well, because, a grown-up. Because I know now and have known for a while that for me, everything's about joy. So when I have noble targets and I'm raging, it is funny. You know, because I'm all about joy. Joy is my motivation. My joy is why I'm sitting with you. What, what I, from what I knew of this show, yes, I knew it would be joyful. I'm in New York. Why am I not going to do it? Of course, everything for me is about joy. When it's not joyful, I either get out or um, figure something out to make it more palatable. Was that conscious though? Because so many of oh, us are oh, it's completely like, conscious. So many of us are. Um, are like imprisoned by what happens when we get angry. Right. And, it, and, and it's clear to me just from your stories, like I said, I listened to a lot of your podcasts when you were doing right. it. And so you're someone who didn't have a hard time accessing rage at right. various times. I still don't when the rage, it, when I'm angry about something that's worth being angry about. How did you teach yourself this? That's I didn't the real teach question. myself it. What does that mean? That means I'm in the moment. I didn't teach myself. I, you're making me even think about things more than I want to. Because I once had dinner with a, a dude <laughs> who ran funny. a comedy show. And afterwards, he wanted to discuss things on so many different levels. And I did. And I wasn't funny. I stopped being funny for like two, three weeks. True. Because I was in my head. And I remember reading a book called Letters from a Nut. That uh, uh, Yeah, the... Uh, Nancy, Ted, Nancy, uh, Ted Nancy, but yeah. it's but it's uh, um, Seinfeld had him on the show this year you know, on Seinfeld. comedians and cars. Yes, yes, he's yeah. Jerry's old Barry friend. Barry Martyr, right? Barry Martyr wrote it, and uh, uh, Jerry, um, um, you know, uh, presented the book. People thought Jerry wrote yeah. it. Anyhow, it was so funny. I mean, so funny and pure that I found comedy again, and I don't, I don't like discussing the why, like you're saying why and how. I don't know and I don't question it. You know who's great at talking about comedy from a, almost a, like being a professor, is Larry Charles. Larry Charles can really take apart comedy and still be funny. And I've had, if I've ever gone to the edge with things I don't want to talk about in terms of figuring stuff out, it's with him, but I don't like to. Well, this comes back to the whole like Dada Zanish thing, yeah. which is how I go to the stage. Right. I don't want to figure out how I do it. You want to bounce through. I don't know how I do it. I have no idea how I do it. I know the craft of how to do it when things aren't working right. But in terms of the joyful aspect and even being able to get angry at noble targets and make it funny, I don't know how and I don't want to know how. And is it the same for you with the way you learned how to not break somebody's fucking car window? Well, by the way, hold on. Let's take a step back. I would would put those two together from the standpoint of it took me to a higher level. Like I say in the special that – 
with the things I learned from being arrested, I would want to be arrested again. It was painful and it destroyed my marriage, but I, um, I would go through it again to learn. And the thing I learned, and this is thematic, it's about confidence and humbleness. The confidence is I know the skills I have as an actor because I know I'm not a good enough actor to rise above bad material. You give me bad material, I'm not going to be good. You give me good material, and it'll be truthful, honest, and real. And people will say to me, you were fucking good. Well, because the material was good. That's how I can do it. And then the humbleness just means seeing the joy, seeing that I'm blessed to be in a situation, that none of it is given to me. Whether it's the audience that night, whether that it's the club allowing me to be on stage, whether it's Netflix allowing me to film, whether it's you giving me a part to do something, that's the blessed part. Then the confidence comes with doing your job. Yes. That, that's, that's how the two of them. And ego has no place in there. And rage has no place in there. Yeah, anger. I, I was just I, the first thing I had written down. I hadn't looked at what I wrote down because I wanted to be here in the moment and not look. But I did the first thing I wrote down was the the amount of self loathing that you allow in when you do what you do because you talk about your frailties. You talk about well, the by worst the way, parts of yourself. The, without uh, the worst parts of myself are what's going to be funny and going to appeal to people. But that's the appealing to people. I don't try and do things that appeal to people, but everybody likes hearing someone else's foibles. That's why to me, comedians when they're at their best are low status. A comedian uh, high this status. Fast. Go further. Cause okay. this is the improv. People don't know High what status, you're talking about, talk about this. Well, no. High status is when you're the king of the scenario or the scene. Low, look, look at Eddie Murphy's early movies, Trading Places, 48 Hours. He's low status going against the high status, which is Groucho Marx, who's the funniest man who ever lived, if you ask me. Even though he would play, uh, you know, everyone was waiting for him to arrive, um, you know, Captain Spaulding, all these things, he's still low status. He's still the schmuck. Beverly Hills Cop is perfect, right? Just what you said. He gets... he gets yelled at by his people. He, yeah. you know, he tries to, um, the first time we meet him when he's trying to do the thing, he tries to con his way into that hotel and the really snooty front desk guy is Who's telling... The snooty front desk guy is high status. That's high status That's guy high and status. Eddie's low status. And he's low status. But you look at the history of comedy, Charlie Chaplin, low status. Low status. Buster Keaton, low status. It, uh, Laurel and Hardy, low status. Low status is where comedy lives. So when I go up on stage, I'm confident that I know what I'm doing, but it's about showing all my vulnerability because that's low status. I don't need to be the cool guy. As a matter of fact, when I choose a song that's cool to walk up to, the first thing I comment on is I'm not cool enough to walk up to the song, but I wanted to talk about it. Because you want to put yourself... It, as again, it's not like a conscious choice you're saying. Yeah, it's not a you're conscious choice. You're just rolling choice. with it. I'm rolling but with it. I'm in the you moment. Know that's where you get. That's it. right. And you watch when Eddie Murphy's movies, 
started not doing well, it's because he went to high status. He wanted to be Cary Grant. But even Cary Grant in Cary Grant movies is low status. He's low status in North by Northwest, a dramatic movie. Even though he's he's beautiful and he's charismatic, he still is low status. It's fascinating, though, man, because Eddie, if you think about Delirious, when he was at the height of it, he was con- he would tell stories about getting his ass kicked in, but That's he when, looked like Elvis Presley up there. But but by the way, when he right went after with, him beat my ass when, when he, tell when that he went with Elvis Presley, all he was doing was getting women to want to fuck him. When he was doing the stuff about the ice cream cone and any anything that he did where he was the failure, that's Eddie Murphy low status funny. Being the stud is not funny. It's not. It's not. And so when did Eddie Murphy make what really is his masterpiece, The Nutty Professor, where he gave a performance that I think in my lifetime has never been matched by another actor. I love that. But what is he? Low status. Who's the jerk? The high status version of him. The low status is what's interesting. Well, it's like the movie of his that's that's out now. I'm mean, right, right in the first, yeah. you know, yeah. ten minutes of of Dolomite. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen it yet. No, I, by the way, having seen Dolomite numerous times, I know all about the movie. I have not had time to see it yet, but, but I will see it because I, I love Eddie. It's going to be right where you want it to yeah. be, status-wise. Right in the beginning. <laughs> right in the first and five minutes. And by the minutes. way, speaking of Eddie, I did a movie with him, Daddy Daycare. And of course. he... Uh, when things would come up, like they're in the script written funny for him, he'd go, let Jeff do this. He was completely confident and humble. So, uh, I, yeah, you, I, I realize some of the podcast audience knows this because they know me. You don't know this, but Eddie and I knew each other when we were six. When I was 16, he was 19. On Long Island? Yeah, we knew each other. I, I helped him get his first record, I'm a bagel. record deal when I was... Any, anyone's listening. How would you have anything to do with him getting a record I, deal? I, my dad was in the record business, and I, I it's a... I'll tell Koppelman it really, sounds uh, like a name of someone uh, in the record yeah, business. Yeah, that's exactly right. My dad's Charles Koppelman. It was a record business guy. And yeah, where's that's he an exec act? I know in the a uh, bunch of different companies. He's not anymore, but he was for a really long I time. I know who your dad was. Yeah. And um, well, my dad's best friend was for a long time was David Steinberg, which is how I got into com- comedy originally. David was like an uncle to me growing up. Well, so, one of the best right. ever. Yeah, really like still. I, I saw David way, last year. A and, great mentor of mine. Yes. I've learned one much the, from David. One Steinberg. of the greats. He took me to see. So uh, when I was 14, David said to me, Brian, I want you to come see something in the city tonight. It's either going to be horrible or incredible. By the way, what a great opening. And he took me to see Gilbert before Gilbert was famous. Oh, okay. And Gilbert was, if you're a comedy fan, he's, by the way. It was, he's the best. For me, he's the best I ever saw in my life. When well, I by was, the way, he is um, for comedy fans. Yes. The, the, the people who aren't but comedy especially fans. Then. Yeah, same especially, with Larry David. Spe- Larry yes. David was for comedy fans. So I went to see him. But basically, I was managing bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, I'll tell you because you'll like it. I was managing bands. I was managing a folk singer mm-hmm. who had a last name like Horowitz. Mm-hmm. And I got him to open for Eddie when Eddie was just a featured player on SNL. Right. But my guy got booed off the stage, you know, because at the second he came out, the audience was like, I thought Eddie Murphy was black. The kid didn't know how to handle it. Right. When he moved from the guitar to the piano and the lights went down, everyone started cheering. When he sat at the piano, Everyone booed. It was horrible. At the end of the night, he came up to me. I'm 16. He's 18. The kid. And he goes, so where are we going to go now to, to have dinner? And I said, well, uh, I'm going to stay here. And I snuck backstage. I watched Eddie. Eddie blew me away. I snuck backstage. 
because I was in there and I basically mm-hmm. said to Eddie, you need to make records. You're like a rock star. And I, mm-hmm. I, I put them together with my father and these record guys and they made, that's how his record career started. Do you know? So I knew him back when I, we were kids. I, for a long time now. Bob Wax. People, oh, Bob Wax, yeah. People think that Eddie, like, where has he been? Why is he not? Because Eddie's great passion is music. Oh, I know. And he plays in his house. I actually, Eddie would fly like B.B. King in and pay B.B. to record with him for a week in his house. Oh, I never knew that. And That's Eddie incredible. And he would give me, when we did uh, Daddy Daycare, he gave me CDs of his music. Oh, of that? Hear. Of the music that he was, like, making with those kind of I guys? Yeah, yeah. He, was, he, was, he, was, he goes, here's the newest stuff I've been doing. Which I never even listened to. So I remember. I so like I remember I when to. when Eddie. And oh, Rick, I did listen to it when he first gave it to me. It was really good. I re- I mean I was there when Eddie first did the Rick James thing and he played it. For, like I remember him coming in and playing party all the time for mm-hmm. my father and I, they because I'd set it up. They would have me in these meetings all the time. You when, know he was very hurt. I'm maybe giving up too much about Eddie. When was he hurt? By the reaction to his him and his music. Of course, he was very hurt by it. He really wanted to be taken seriously. Well, he had a lot, you know, when Eddie became, so I haven't seen him in a very, very long time, but I really knew him when we were young. You know, we spent a decent amount of time together. We had real conversations when we were young. Mm -hmm. He, you know, he was so famous and people loved him so much, but then there was so much racism that he had to deal with in weird ways. You know, as a famous, in the business, I'm sure he told you when the Beverly Hills Hotel turned him away one night. Right. There's all sorts of shit. And... I think he made a decision about how he was just going to handle himself and mm-hmm. on his own terms. And mm-hmm. I admire it. I, I think he, if you look at it, he, along with Tom Cruise, they're like the biggest st- stars, really, of that era. Our, for sure. yeah. uh, still, you know, I would agree. It, it's all still um, an event. By the way, I got a shout out to they're, Je- they're my friend Jeff Rodkey, who wrote Daddy Daycare, is a great yeah. guy. Yeah. I just want to sh- give a little love to Rodkey because he, he, that put him on the map to begin, you know, in, in the beginning. How does Jeff Bezos keep getting richer? What's up with Kanye West's sneaker empire? Is Kim Kardashian really a self-made woman? Listed, a podcast from Forbes Entertainment, unpacks the stories and fortunes of the world's wealthiest and most influential people, sharp and witty co-hosts, Maggie McGrath and Abram Brown, who are listologists and Forbes editors, as well as old friends, sit down with the reporters who cover the rich and powerful on Forbes' famous list including the Forbes 400, the Celebrity 100, the world's most powerful women, 30 under 30, and more. When your job is rigorously reporting on the rich and powerful, you can't help but come back with surprising insights, good stories, and a healthy sense of humor. Look, Forbes magazine is known for its famous list, like the Forbes 400, 30 under 30, many more. And and those lists come from these people rigorously reporting on wealth, business, and influence. And some of the rich and Famous people want to talk about themselves, but some are veiled in mystery. The Forbes staffers cover them all, and they have insights and perspectives that these listed people would never tell you about themselves. Wealth reporting is and can be serious business, but listed co-hosts, listologists, and Forbes editors McGrath and Brown never miss an opportunity to bring their wit to the conversation along with the facts and analysis. Listed is released weekly in 10-episode seasons. The show is more evergreen than headline-driven, and skimming through the growing list of people they've covered offers something for everyone, from entrepreneurs to pop culture lovers to sports fans. 
Listen and subscribe to Listed wherever you get your podcasts. So the question about ego and status. Is it something that as you started to grow up in doing this shit, you learned to get on top of? Because it, it, a lot of your comedy, you know, when you looked at that couple and you just offhandedly saying you're special, mm-hmm. I was you. Mm-hmm. That gave me like layers of understanding. Without a doubt. And Into who way, Jeff Garland. W- can I be frank? Yes. I'm talking to that guy in the arts about unrequited love. And two things are going on. One thing is, in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, look at the gift I've been given, and don't blow it. Have fun with this. This is really joyful. This is great. And I, I approach him positively. I never approach it You were as sweet as could be. Yeah. And, and, but when I say to him that I understand, I do. As a matter of fact, not even from my past, I'm always in a state of unrequited love. I'm... Currently in a state of unrequited love. It punches me in the face. That doesn't mean I don't date. That doesn't mean I don't have nice times. But I'm currently in an unrequited love right now as I sit here. Why do you find yourself always in that position? Don't know. Don't know. And someone said, maybe you like it. And I go, God, no. I love being with You'd rather be in love. Yeah. You'd rather have her love you back. Without a doubt. It's not a thing that I have at all. But, you know, I find myself in... Yeah, and so I empathize. But, ironically, as a comedian, um, that's low status, <laughs> you know? So that's you can, what I was going to ask so you. you. I was going to say, you and do also, need it. You might need that. I lost my virginity to a heckler. Tell that story. I, I got to okay. hear that. Miami Beach, uh, 1982. <laughs> um, I'm 20 years old. Uh, I'm emceeing a show, and a woman is hecklingly... Heckling me, uh, she's insane coming at me, and I didn't know how to handle it. After the show's over, I'm down the street at the bar. The the was it the Carlisle or the Cardoza? I don't remember. Some guy says my my friend wants to buy you a drink, and I said I don't really drink, but a ginger ale, sure. And then she came up to me, and it was her. And I go, and she's a beautiful woman, and I'm like, oh, she goes, can you come outside and talk to me for a minute? I go, okay. She goes, I'm so sorry, and then she kissed me. Then she runs on the beach, because we're right on the beach, ripping off her clothes, yelling, follow me, follow me. I followed her. I went to, a, a, I lost my virginity on a, on a, in a lifeguard stand on South Beach to a heckler, who, by the way, <laughs> turned out to be 33, 33-year-old lawyer. And when I found out, my reaction to myself was, I'm glad I lost my virginity, but my God, she's like 80. You oh, know? no. Yeah. That's hilarious. You're, you, you're, you can't be dumber than a 20-year-old. I can't believe she was a heckler. Yeah, she, I didn't know what I was doing, and she slammed me. That's amazing. So you were doing stand-up at 20? Yeah. I started, I started the week after my 20th birthday. So, all right. You said this one thing. that One thing you said in your special that I really want to talk about is this advice you said you gave to your kids. Yeah. Because I see this a little differently. So I want to lay out this advice about Well, the being advice the best. is pretty simple. It's not just my kids. It's to anyone. And it's, it's from someone who has spent the last 37 years in show business. Don't follow your dreams. Unless your dreams are what you're great at. So if you're great at numbers and you live in St. Louis, I say become an accountant. 
And let's say you want to be a singer, and that's your dream. But you're a good singer. Not even very good. You're good. People say, oh, he's good. Well, become a great accountant. Make lots of money. And then with your extra money, buy some recording time and uh, play it for your friends. And I joke and I say, let your friends tell you you made the right choice. But I firmly believe (laughs) that... um, Follow your dreams if your dreams are what you're great at. Other, you, Because guess what? When you follow your dreams and your dreams are what you're great at, you're about to hit a lot of pain. Yeah, you heard what I said. When it's all right, you're still going to hit you're, you're t- tons, tons of, of pain. pain, tons of adversity. So if you're not good or you're just good, oh, it's going to be failure unless some weird stroke of luck pops in. But how do you know? Because, like, if you think about... I knew I was funny from the time I was in nursery school. I was the funniest kid in school. And then there was a period in my career as a young comedian where I was killing every night. And a friend of mine, Lou Schneider, said we'd just become friendly. And he was hanging around with a person that he thought was funny offstage. He sees me. He says, he goes, I know you record your act. Do you listen? And I uh, said, no. I don't. I learned later on I have ADD, you know. So I listened to it that night. Oh, yeah. So I listened to it that night, and I thought, oh, this is just hackneyed crap. And I got to talk about what matters to me. And I proceeded to bomb for like two years. I would say 90% of my shows were eating it. And God bless Zany's Comedy Club in Chicago. They never fired me. And... Yeah, I spent two years, and but what kept me going through those two years was knowing that I'm funny. Still had an ego then, but I knew I was funny, and that changed everything. I think that just like being a great athlete, if you're a great singer, a great writer, at a point, look, I'm not saying don't put some time in and you're not quite sure, but it should occur to you at some point that you're really great at what you're trying to do. Yeah, I wonder because I was 30, uh-huh. and all I felt was I was 30, racked with the ADD stuff, so I couldn't finish anything. Without I couldn't doubt, produce pages. It. I couldn't do it, right? Uh-huh. My first kid was born, and I felt like I could feel something dying in me that was going to become toxic. Right. Like, if I didn't try... This toxicity, like any other kind of death, there was a toxicity, and it would leach out onto the people I loved and make right. me bitter right. if I didn't fucking try to go. So I didn't quit my job. I stayed in my job, but I got up early, and I started writing the first script with my best friend, and it turned into Rounders. And like, well, I had no way of knowing that I could do it. I just believed I could okay. do it. But then I worked my ass off at it. And then you saw that you could do it, and you were good at it. Yeah. Right. Once I was really. Yeah, but you're not talking about a long period of time trying. You're talking about a period. By the way, every period of time is a long period. Well, yeah, the rejections, but we got rejected at first by everybody. Of course. But all said it'll never sell. You learned at some point, oh, this is what I'm good at. For example, what I felt was alive. This is why I want to ask you, because for people who are, because I really have been thinking since I saw the special about this, and like people, um, the thing that made me know that I should do it was when I started doing it, it made me feel alive in a way that was different from anything else. All right. So I'm going to point out to you how things can happen. So a friend of mine, 
I'm not going to tell you her history. It's pretty interesting. It's, uh, uh, but the important thing is she wrote stories and such. She um, painted, but that wasn't what she did, and she was kind of lost, and we became friends. And she would tell me stories, and I go, I bet you you're a good writer. She goes, really? I go, yep. Well, we've been writing now for about eight months, and we're finishing up a project that I hopefully is going to become a TV series. Oh, that's awesome. And she is in her late 40s, and she said, right now, even if she was loaded, rich, 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 she'd still want to write every day because it's what she's good at. So I'm not saying that people don't can't discover that they're good at something later in life, but I'm saying... If I can be frank, you pursued your dream, and you're great at it. That's why it worked. She's pursuing her dream, and I, as an outsider looking in, think she's great at it. So it works. I'm talking about all the people, and these are the majority of people who are following their show business dreams, which is what I primarily am focusing on. Of course. Oh, yeah. Um, who are not that, like I work with actors and I think, oh, you're good, but why did you ever think that you would really do damage here? You know? Um, well, yeah, sure. 95% of the people who walk into an audition room, you can't under, you know, we've both been on the side of it watching them. And I've been on both sides. Right. Yeah. I have too. And, and I've been on the, on the side where I was inept and I wasn't ready. Of course. Uh, but, but the pain if you feel like, um, like Mark Teixeira, the baseball player, yes. is, he's pals with my partner, Levine. They live in the same town. And Teixeira said, some parents at the school or whatever were all getting together and they were talking about, you know, well, I think, you know, young Jimmy should only play whatever sport. And Teixeira said, listen, guys, when I was eight years old, I could hit a baseball out of any room, that, any field they ever put me on. You're either born with the ability to crush a baseball or you're not. And stop explain, fucking worrying about can it. Can I explain something to you? Because I imagine that uh, quite a few of your listeners play golf. I, I, had a go- I, I had a golf teacher. I play golf on occasion. I'm not a golfer. Yeah. But he gave, I enjoy golf because of my teacher. He was in his 90s. Uh, and and uh, he said to me, um, Ed, I loved Ed. Ed said to me, because he taught Mark McGuire a few times and taught like all these different people. And he said, if you're Tiger Woods and you don't play good or you hit a bad ball, you should be angry. Cause not only is the talent there, but the training, if it's me and I hit the, I shank a ball. Yeah. Why should I be remotely angry? That's what's expected. It's not even a negative attitude. It's like, I don't have that skill. So when I hit it straight center, you know, it's that's everything coming together in a beautiful way, but nothing I can repeat because I don't have the skill set. Yes. I'm not great. If I wanted well, to be a professional golfer, it's unrealistic. I can't do it. He said Mark McGuire could hit the ball straight across the, yeah, the, forever, the, the as forever. long as the day is. He goes, yeah. that's Mark McGuire. He has the skill set. He has the hand-eye coordination. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I, I think about it, um, I think about something like, uh, when I hear someone like Sarah McLaughlin sing, if I just pick someone who you feel like has, they were just born to, you know, you watch American Idol and all these people, mm-hmm. can, and then she opens her mouth and it just sounds like that. Right, right, right. On the other hand, what I say to people is, 
If you want to chase your dreams, the part people leave out is you have to chase them with incredible rigor, focus, and discipline. Be uh, by the way, I'm agreeing with you because that's the thing that's I, that's I, the separator. No, no, me. here's here's a separator. Ready? I'm going to say two people's names. And this will make total sense. Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant. Right. Truly of their eras, the most talented players. Okay? But what separated them? They were also number one in work and focus. Hardest working people in sports. The two of them. So when you have that talent and you have that work and that focus, see, that's what it takes. It's not only that talent, but it's the work and the focus mix. Because you can be a failure with, you can be great at something and pursue your dream of it. But if you don't have the focus and the work ethic, you're not going anywhere. Correct. And that's I agree with that. But that's why I think, you know, uh, when Dylan left Minneapolis to come to to New York, most people thought he was out of his fucking mind. They did not think he was talented. And so I am scared to tell people. Don't, you know. By the way, it's not my job to tell people. It's their own journey. Right. I'm making a general statement. Yes. And and my statement, only you know in your gut if it's true. And by the way, Bob Dylan. I love that. Bob Dylan, when he came to New York, he thought he was hot shit. Yes. And he knew it. Yeah, he knew it. The only person that has to know it is you. Love it. That's That's right. That's it. It's not like other people. By the way, here's what I'm also going to tell you about pursuing your dreams if you're great at your dreams. Know that even if you're great at your dreams, everyone's going to tell you why you can't make it, and people are going to discourage you right and left all the time. That comes with the territory. So the only person that has to know and really know is, in fact, you. That's the best, because that's the Larry David thing, right, that he would tell the Ustedes joke and – you know, the two-form Ustedes yeah, joke. Yeah, 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 And he didn't, he knew, even though they weren't laughing, he knew they were wrong. But, but he, he took it when he was doing stand-up a step further than that. He resented them right. for being an intelligent, Dumb. not comedy Dumb. fans. Yeah, right. for not getting it. And you don't a, get to that place? No, no. I, by the way, I did when I was younger. And that's him doing it when he's younger. He doesn't get to that way on curb anymore. And that's not, who I, that's not a way to grow. That's not evolving. That's staying stupid. And that's having an ego. You know, his ego said, what, 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 what's wrong with you? Okay, I have a question. Why does Seinfeld work when he's fully high status? Everything he does is high status. Why does it work? Right? The, be, the way he approaches the whole thing is... No, I think that Jerry Seinfeld as a person is high status, but what he points out in his comedy is every man stuff. I think he's blue collar in terms of the observation that we all are on. Our own foibles. Right. Jerry Seinfeld, by the way, Jerry Seinfeld, what is he not? Jerry Seinfeld is not a movie star. Jerry Seinfeld is a stand-up comedy star. That's what he is. Yes. Oh, and and so. So even by what, definition, it's putting him in low low enough status when people are. Well, no, to see he him. he he can talk about things that we all can relate to. Whereas if he went with the status of being uh, almost a billionaire, and he went with the way he lives his life, he would not be famous. He's able to carve out what's weird about the world for all of us. So it doesn't matter that he actually is a person of incredibly high doesn't status. Matter. Yeah. And do you think that's why part of why people went after Chappelle? Because why? well, because now the, like I'm a huge Chappelle fanatic and yeah, I yeah, yeah. I think everyone 
I've, I've said this, um, by definition, um, a black man in America cannot be condescending to white. He's, as a black man in America, he, he's in a position where, no, you know, I don't like people saying that he's an authority sort of pissing down on people. Right. On the other hand, he does hold himself out as kind of above the fray. See, I don't think he makes a choice. What does that mean? And by the way, you've got to be above the fray. I'm above the fray. I don't get involved in the noise. And I know, guess what? He doesn't get involved in the noise. We live in a time of noise. Comedy is still funny. I've changed nothing because of me too. Because of, I'm never afraid going up to, to improvise for an hour that I'm going to say something that's anti-woman or anti-human being. Ever. Because you're not going to. That's not, who, not who you am. are. Right. And guess what? He's not either. Because that's not who he is. And so when people say comedy's changed, you can't do comedy. What, what has changed is there's a lot, because of the internet, there's more of a platform for, there's two things going on now. There's more of a platform for people without a sense of humor to get their thing across. And also we're living in very fearful times. People second guess. That ain't me. That ain't Chappelle. And he certainly, my risks are more about me looking stupid. His risks are, he points out how as a country we look stupid. That, he points out a lot of that. But I don't think he's at never, risk to himself, though. At, at risk himself. of, of. But I never pick up David being high status. I pick up Dave Chappelle as I call him David, as if he's known as that. Uh, but I never pick up Dave Chappelle as someone who is going for high status. He's above the fray in, in the fact that he won't listen to the noise. But neither will I. I'm just doing different stuff. Getting caught up in the noise or people will be offended. I never worry about what someone will be offended by. It's either funny or it's not. So I was thinking about Bill Evans and Coltrane and Monk. Yeah. All people I love and I know right. you love, right? Number one guy of all time is Monk. Yes. I understand and that. And also, I think he's the genius of music of all time as a, as a uh, writing music and also playing the way, style in which he played. Uh, yeah, I think I, he's I, the genius of geniuses. I, I think Monk, I, it doesn't matter what I think, he's uh, one of the greatest who ever lived. I find it hard sometimes. Like, I have to really put the time in with Monk, you know? Oh, that's so funny. He comes so natural to me in terms of grooving. Like you watch the movie. Like I, you know, he, well, by the way, he was clearly mentally ill. There's this incredible book called, but beautiful. Do you ever Uh, read it by this guy, Jeff Dyer, where he talks, he fictionalized all these, all these guys. And like the Monk stories, he tried making that into a movie. Oh, they should very hard. Like you have to do like that 32 films about Glenn Gould kind of a way to make it. But those guys, you know, one of the things about the romance of all those people is that the demons won. Even Evans, right? All I mean, even Evans, all of them. Heroin, heroin wins, won. right? Heroin always and, will take over. And so, you know, you talk in your special about. I have diabetes. About, yeah, you talk and about. And I have, and I had. Uh, people should never feel bad for me. Like, how do you not eat sugar? I, I've eaten more sugar than rooms than entire audiences. How did you make the choice? So you sort of, and then we can end because the fat guy I always like to understand it. How how did you? It was a weekend. I'm going to tell you because I didn't. So what's talk the real about thing yet? Yeah, really tell it. Because my special, I talk about the fat model. Yeah. That but I, I saw know that's Canada. not the real. Oh no, that happened, and I felt that. But the reality was, it was a weekend. Just recently, I had the anniversary. I believe it was November 5th. Uh, it was a week. It was a strange weekend, and it just changed everything. Here's what happened. I was in Chicago. My mom was dying, and. Sorry. Um, I flew back to L.A. because I 
felt my mom was still going to be around for a little while longer. And then, uh, so I flew home. So I was on this, uh, this is really means something to me what I'm about to tell, because it's, it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like magic. It's like believing in God and the universe. This is what happens. So I'm in Chicago and I forgot this important part. Friday night, I go to my favorite blues club called blues. B-L-U-E-S, period, in between each. It's on Halstead Street, uh, across from Kingston Mines, which is also great, but blues. And when I'm there, um, um, oh, shit. What the, I don't have my phone in here. I'm trying to think of the name of the blues artist. It'll come to me. Um, Buddy Guy. No, 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 it's not Buddy Guy, who I just, I've gotten, we're not friends, but I've gotten a nobody guy, signed a guitar, and he told me, I expect you to play it. So there's a lot of pressure on me. Uh, anyhow, uh, <laughs> it's true. He signed this guy, he goes, I expect you to play this. Uh, he talked about it. He's just, he, buddy guy is one of my heroes. Um, You're at this club. Yes. And I'm watching this dude um, um, perform. And then I find out from the doorman, he tells me this story. Essentially, the dude who was performing uh, was schizophrenic and had had a lot of problems, was very ill. And this one record company, uh, Delmark, said to him, um, the gentleman's name is Larry Bell. Okay. And Larry Bell, I'm watching him at Blues, and I find out he's got some mental illness and had. So Delmark Records said to Larry, we're going to get you medication. We're going to get you the proper care. We're going to pay for everything. You owe us an album when we're done. You owe us an album. So we recorded that album. So that night, I download the album. And I'm listening to So I fly home the next morning and on Saturday, and I'm listening to the music, listening to the music. And I'm not putting two and two together yet. I'll come to this. We know conclusion. you're going to get there. Yeah. So... Uh, on the flight, generally I buy a bunch of crap, sugary crap, sure. in the airport. But also, this was Virgin America, and they had the Dean and DeLuca Swedish fish, <laughs> which I loved. And they had given to you uh, on the flight, and I would usually eat three packages of it. Always three. I don't. It just happened. Yeah, as many as I could take without without saying, it being half a dozen. Please half a give do them all to me. Anyhow, I land. I'm listening to Larry Bell. I land. And I hadn't eaten any of my sugary things. I had said no without noticing to the Swedish fish. And I'm like, wow, hmm, this is interesting. So the next morning, Sunday morning, I go to Overeaters Anonymous and I get a sponsor. Wow. Because I realize I'm not strong enough as me. It's not about me to do this on my own. I have to believe in a higher power. Whatever that is, got to be a higher power. Okay. So later that morning, I decide, I tell my wife that I thought about it, I'd already moved out, that we're definitely not getting together, getting back together. Not that All that this one weekend. On the table. One day. Um, and so, you know, and, and yeah, I told her no. And then there was somebody I had an unrequited love with, and I had to break that off same day. So I told my wife, I, I, I didn't leave my wife for another woman. 
You know what I mean? Yes. Um, I don't want to get into the details because, A, I love my ex. Uh, she's the mother of my children. I have nothing bad to say about her. It's true. Only wonderful things, and I hope that I'm as close with her as ever for the rest of my life. I love her and respect the fuck out of her. So, not going to go down there, but this was the day I told her. This was the day where I kind of had something with someone, but it really didn't go anywhere, and I went, this is too painful. I got to end this. We can't be friends. Then I get the call that my mom died. Uh. Then I remember that I have a show that night at a club called Flappers in Burbank. Great club. As bad as the name, that's how good the club is. I love it. But I have to go improvise for an hour, having officially ended my marriage, having uh, broken off this unrequited thing, having... um, Gone to overeaters. And my mom went to overeaters, and my my mom died. This is all okay. And um, so uh, that night I do a show, and I don't talk at all about it, but I improvised and I destroyed. Driving home... I listen to Lurie Bell again. And then I hear this one song and I went, yeah, that's it. The name of the song is Faith in Music. And what it means is that when it's all said and done, all he has is his faith and his music. And I realized my children, who are the most important thing to me in the world, they're not mine. As much as I said my children, they're they're their own. It's their life. What do I own? What is me? What, what, what do I have the right to? My faith in a higher power, which to me is the universe. That's proof of a higher power. There has to be something more important than me. And my comedy. That's all I got. All I have is my faith and my comedy. And I have been sober since that day. And I approach my comedy with joy and humbleness of how privileged I am to have that skill and the opportunity to perform it. So I just told you a story that I kept out of my special. Felt it was too wordy and it just would have stopped things. No, it's awesome to hear it that that's where you came. Well, you brought that out of me. That's really what happened. That's really it. And no sugar since. No, by the way, sugar, but not, I've had a bowl of raisin bran, for example, but I have not had ice cream, cookies, cake, anything you would deem a dessert. Have I had a protein bar where I was desperately hungry? Yes. So, you know, but sugar used to be my number one nutrient, and it is number it's not even on the list. Well, that's fantastic. So yeah. if if there's if sugar is the Fifth ingredient in a gluten-free waffle, a plain gluten-free waffle, and there's not a lot of sugar in it, great. It's when sugar is the top two or three where you go, And you're not oh, going to pour mountain of syrup on it. There's no syrup. I'll have – what I'll have is um, – what I like is waffles, uh, whole grain or gluten-free stuff. I, I, I mostly go gluten-free, but low sugar, and then I eat eggs on my waffles. Well, I'll I tell you, I was the, watching your special. My wife walked in the room. And instead of normally, I would say to her how funny this guy is. And I literally was like, look how good Garland looks. Oh, that's so, nice. Uh, the, 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 uh, well, I'm wearing the, the, a Seville Row uh, custom-made uh, suit. No, this, I knew it was a cut. Let me say this. Uh-huh. I was 100% sure it was a yeah. custom suit. Yeah. Hey, Jeff Garland, thank you so much. Jeff, You're he's on social media. You can find him on Twitter. Uh, no, no, you cannot find me on Twitter. Someone pretending to be me on Twitter. I am only on Instagram. But there, there is an official Jeff Garland, no? That is not me. So That's you're on Instagram else. only. I'm only on As Instagram. What? Jeff Garland. 
All right, Jeff Garland. Yeah, uh, on Instagram. And Instagram, I do post and I enjoy it. Uh, and this special, I'm going to tell you, uh, go watch this special because you're seeing somebody who is open and available and present, which is a really rare thing to see live, but even more rare to see that on television, on Netflix. You almost I'm honored never by your it. words, my friend. I hope that I'm very proud of it, and I feel I captured lightning in a bottle, so all I can say to people is I hope you dig it. Yeah. I'm not going to say it's great. I'm going to say I hope you dig it. It's worth watching, everyone, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brian Koppelman uh, or email me at the moment, bk at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.